number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where interesting, intriguing, and exciting people engage in unscripted exchanges of ideas, stories, and perspectives. It's not an interview. It's a powerful conversation. Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, folks. I have to tell you, I have got an amazing guest on the show this week. And as usual, the two of us are going to have a conversation that is hopefully going to have a positive impact in your life. Maybe even boycott your old way of thinking. Maybe even push you to re-evaluate your relationship, not just with yourself, but with life around you. And I know that my guest today is one that will inspire you to do that. Let me give you a bit of information on who he is. His name is Sultan Akif. He is an award-winning CEO of two social entrepreneurships. He's a published author, a tech professor, a professional, and speaker who has traveled to and inspired people in over 75 countries in the world. He is a recognized top 10 global change maker, uh, which was given to him by the Introducer magazine. He left a successful 17-year career in the technology industry to connect with his purpose and to inspire thousands with his story. Now, prior to his success, Sultan was once a boy who could not afford any books. Now, he's on a mission to build 100 libraries around the world with his own hands. And he's completed what I think is 24 so far in seven countries. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Sultan Akif. Welcome, Sultan. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thrilled to be be on the show, and you know what? Wow, I, I... I'm very, I'm very grateful for that very gracious and kind introduction. <laughs> well, you know what? I, it's funny. It was, I always find that when I have uh, really interesting people such as yourself on the show, that uh, if I were to read your entire bio, it would at least take up 30 minutes of the entire uh, episode. <laughs> so I, I, only, I had to cut it down so that they heard a, a piece of it. Now, um, you know, let's just get people all on the same page here straight away. I mean, you are a guy who had... That corporate job, you were that story, that story people hear about and they read about in books. It's like the dude with a corporate job who's making good money and decides, <clears throat> you know what, I'm out of here. So give everyone like the, you know, the, the, the two-minute version of, of what happened there. You know what, we'll keep it very real, Stuart. And um, yes, I had, uh, had a very good job. I you know, was jet-setting around the world. I, was, you know, I had it made in terms of um, societal expectations and material success. And uh, there was a growing realization that I was going to die one day without giving my real dreams a shot. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like a dark, morbid kind of realization. It was just a fact of life. And I have no ill feelings towards my careers, but in one soul-searching trip, I'm heading down to the Sahara Desert. Yes, I love to do crazy things. So I'm heading out there and uh, I see these kids asking for water on the side of a road. And I'm just like, what am I doing with my life? And can I do better? Mm-hmm. And I lied down on that sand and I looked up and I said, how many people before me have seen these stars? And how many people after me will see these stars? So why am I here? And am I spending my time in the right way? Mm-hmm. Long story short on that, came back with my job and uh, just started to really double down on my purpose, which specifically for me is helping people realize how powerful they are, helping youth realize that they are the solution to every challenge that uh, that the world is currently facing. And that is what has brought tremendous amount of joy in my life, that as much as I enjoyed my previous career in my life, 
there's no comparison for me in terms of how life is now. So let's, but let's backtrack for a second. So first of all, what were you even doing in the Sahara? Were you just on like a personal, hey, I'm just traveling through whatever, were you in Egypt or wherever you happened to be? Like you just thought, oh, I'm going to go backpacking. What, what, what were you doing there? Well, it was, uh, it was basically that, that typical December, you know, I was, I was a global director uh, running around the world and life was intense. So you take these downtimes to rejuvenate and uh, that was a downtime and it was a couple of weeks and I was in southern Spain and just made my way down to Morocco and it was just to re- rejuvenate in the typical sense. But for the longest time, something had been brewing up in the mind and it was just, you know, it wasn't a snap decision, but it, would, it just led to it. So the idea was, quite frankly, just wasn't to quit my job and it wasn't to, you know, just uh, just have this big transformative decision. But um, it was uh, it was a trip in which I kept an open heart and an open mind. But I just said, you know what, let life experiences come my way. And instead of knowing all the answers, let me start with asking the right questions. So let's talk about that for a second, about this little voice that we all have inside of us. And I always find that voice to be so magical and sometimes so annoying at the same time. And the reason it's annoying is because I know it's right. Uh, in fact, I'm in a situation right now where I have a business deal I'm doing with a major company. And when I was presented with the opportunity, my very first thought was, I'm not going to do this. I just know in my gut, this is not the right decision. I shouldn't be doing this. It's going to end up being coming way more work than I expected and all the negative things that I knew were, that were going to come out of it. But then I thought, oh, well, you know what? Just do it, Stuart. You know, you're going to make some extra money and it's good for the business and whatever. I, I gave myself the reasons why. And just this morning, I opened up my email and I read the email from the client and I was like, oh God, why did I not listen to my gut on this? Because this client was doing the exact thing that I knew was going to happen, which was they're going to ask me for way more than what we agreed upon. They're going to uh, diminish my brand in the process and it's just just not going to be me at the end of it. So. Yeah. What is it with this voice? What, like, what, why don't we listen to it? Or is it a case where we just, are we too busy to listen to it? What, why do you think that, we all have those voices. Sometimes it's telling us we need to get out of a relationship. Sometimes it's telling us to quit our jobs. Sometimes it's telling us we've got to lose weight. What is it about that voice that we don't listen to? You know what? Wow. Thank you for sharing that story and, and um, for that question. I, I've been doing a lot of soul searching, a lot of thinking. I just came back off, you know, a, a retreat in which I, I brought my existence back in myself. And uh, this is one question, Stuart, uh, that I've been really thinking through. What prevents us from connecting with our purpose? What prevents us from engaging with who we know we have the potential to be deep inside? And I think there are two dimensions to this. The first one is that voice starts with a whisper. And it's just like, you know what? you can be doing this or maybe the white right way is to kind of approach things this way. And we're very good at just shutting that voice off, putting it in the back corner and not listening to it. But here's the thing with this voice, it becomes a roar. It it, it doesn't go away. And, and the more you ignore it, the more it just grows and grows and grows. And then people do like snap decisions, you know, they, they run out of a relationship or they jump in. I think there's a better way. And that better way is to embrace that voice and to just listen to it and and go, why am I not actually taking action, starting with small steps on it? And I think the biggest reason and guiltiest charge for me is 
these concepts of, I, I visually look at them as mental shackles, these versions of success that we learn as children and reinforced across our lives that prevent us from embracing sometimes our individual reality. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example, you know, getting a flashy new car that we can't afford is going to often cripple our ability to do something that we actually love to do. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like that children's example of sometimes you give them an amazing toy and they love the cardboard box. Well, you know, we sometimes love little things and, mm -hmm. but, but wow, let's not talk about that because you know what, that's not what the society expects. But here's the thing, like we're individuals with immense potential. And when we connect with the fact that we are not a passenger in the bus, but the driver of the bus, I think that's when we start to listen to that voice. It's a great way of putting it, actually. And I, and I think that that is something I think that most people don't realize is that they have just allowed themselves to believe that they are, um, unfortunately, passengers in either a bus of life or a passenger in their career bus or their relationship bus, meaning this is the way it is. This is the way things go. This is my best scenario. And um, I should just be happy to be on a bus. In fact, the seats are pretty right. comfortable on this bus. And you know what? The view isn't so bad out the window, and, and we allow mm -hmm. ourselves to, to, to believe it's okay. You know, I was having a conversation with someone just yesterday about this, and I said, I find it fascinating that we as a human species are so um, quick to pat ourselves on the back for the world that we have created and for us to say, look at what we've done, you know, we've created jobs, we've created healthcare systems and education systems. And I think it's important for us to say, yes, it's been great what we have created. But I also think it's important for us to step, step back from the picture and say, you know, we are the ones who created this. I mean, it's not like exactly. it just came out of thin air, right? We have to acknowledge that. And if that's the case, maybe... Like maybe we should only be working four hours a day. Like maybe we should recreate this, or maybe we should not even be in monogamous relationships, or maybe we should be the political system should be completely different. Like we forget, we think that because things are the way that they are, that's the way they always should be, and and that's that's just absolutely ludicrous. And so you don't you don't need to accept the life that you currently have. Oh, I'm I'm with you, my friend. And you know, sociologically speaking, it's I think the exact. The phrase that I really love is that reality is socially created and it can be deconstructed and recreated. Right. <laughs> and if you take a look at the wisdom of that, that's actually really true. And, uh, you know, I fundamentally believe in my own decisions. And I've made some, some pretty radical ones over the years and getting more and more intense. And that is it's just a simple belief that just the way things are the way they are right now doesn't mean they have to be. If we believe in something, whether it's an individual transformation, a societal transformation, whatever it is that we believe, we actually have the power to do something about it. Right. And just that thought, to be honest with you, Stuart, was, was and remains a cornerstone of both my own transformation and the people I work with. I mean, I think once we really embrace that, like, down to the core, you know, not in a cliche way, but we embrace that. We start looking at ways to achieve our destiny, ways to achieve our purpose, ways to achieve our impact. And we don't look at this as a distant dream then. Right. You know, and, and I think the key, I, I always look at it this way, that I inherently believe in the power of people to achieve what they want to achieve. So success will come 
it's happiness that's the real objective here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you marry the two and, and really understand that success is not this materialized, pedestalized version that somebody else created, but our own canvas that we paint, then, then happiness tends to infuse itself. We just went deep, brother. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And we're gonna, and we're gonna go deeper. Now let me let me ask you this. Okay, so there you are. You're, you're in the Sahara, and you see these kids asking for water on the side of the street, and you start looking under the st- at the stars, and you're thinking about life now. And it, there's always been this little voice in the back of your mind that's been kind of nagging at you to consider living a life that's more aligned with what your dreams are. What do you do then? Like, I, I don't get the sense that you went back home and walked into your boss's office and said, "I quit." How, how does a person? after having that realization, and I know you were saying it's more like, sounds like more baby steps. What did you do? How did, how did you get from being a corporate guy to being a charity guy? Well, you know, what I started doing, like leading up to that moment, and was I started to ask myself this question, am I actually, what do I care about? Like, what do I act as a human care about Mm -hmm. and it's a hard question to answer to be honest with you because too many times the answers we give ourselves are not our own Mm -hmm. and and the first seven of them are like boom this that this entrepreneur and all of that and then when I start to connect with myself you know over over a few years I would say I realized that I find joy happiness in doing something that will last well after I'm gone whether that's helping a person connect with themselves, building something that doesn't need me. So I I actively work myself out of a project because if it's about me, then it's not going to last Mm -hmm. because I'm not going to last. And with that thought, I I just sort of, I built an expo that is now the largest in Canada. And I saw how lives changed out of that, but I didn't quit my job. I I just sort of did it as a hobby. Okay, so you, you built a what? Did you say an expo? Yes, so it's called Experience Your Life Expo. It's the largest uh, youth empowerment event in Canada now. Okay. And uh, the idea is to help our college and university students connect with life-changing opportunities, life-changing mentors, jobs, entrepreneurship grants. And I built it as a hobby because I, again, in that premise, wanted to do something that would set a change in motion. You know, so, like so a rock I, I, I got to jump in. How many people came to your first expo? Oh, the first expo was like 300. And how did you get 300 people to come out to like your first expo? Like you just made a bunch of random calls to colleges and universities and said, hey, here's the date. Here's what I'm doing. Send your students. Pretty much Hail Mary. Pretty much everything. I just started to call everyone I knew that cared and called colleges up and bypassed every, uh, everything that would drain my energy but, but would not get, deliver that impact. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically... You know, we stand here a few years later where we get 3,000 people to come. And so and, I guess this, the, obviously the universities or colleges who sent people said it was a great experience. We want to send more. And then people who maybe didn't come year one, they start coming year two. And it's been growing since there. It has. And, you know, people now fly in from Singapore, from Panama, like executives come in because they need that energy of sincerity. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, like I was, I was, I was having that joy in my life and then... I was having my corporate job, which again, the way I look at it, I, I don't go like, oh my God, bad corporate job. And it was fulfilling a purpose in my life, but it was no longer a priority for me. Okay. And 
you know what, uh, Stuart kind of looked at that and said, I got to go all in on what I believe in. So Sahara Desert, kids, the whole shebang. And I basically said, you know what, I'm going to just build this event. And libraries were not even on the radar then, to be honest with you. And the biggest thing in my story is, is I, you know, I'm not the one that comes in and says, hey, here's a big blueprint that I thought I was going to make a difference. It was just like, I need to do something. I need to do. And, and the biggest moment I go, you, you took me back to that part. I was seeing so much misery, to be honest with you, that it often gets us overwhelmed. It goes like, we're insignificant. How can we even fix this? How can we even do anything about this? And, and I had like a moment of clarity there, which was inspired by this little girl that was hungry all day. And I gave her, you know, some, some ice cream and she said no. And I was like, who doesn't like ice cream? Well, a hungry child. And I gave her bread and then she sat down and she shared with her brother and that smile was so infectious. I said, you know what? I can't solve the world's problems, but I can bring a smile to this person's face. So I am not powerless. Mm-hmm. I am not insignificant. I, I have power and I have a choice. And by not doing that, I'm choosing not to do it. Right. And that was a powerful moment for me, man. I kind of said, okay, I will make different choices. I will go all in. I will jump in. And basically that led to a chain reaction that... I'm still, uh, it's continuing to this day. And so did this happen then? So you're running this, uh, I'm guessing, is a yearly expo. And in the midst of it, what, did you go on a trip somewhere else? And and this time you you came across a little girl who was hungry and you gave her some bread? Like, where were you and what what happened there? Um, This was basically exiting the Sahara, same trip. Um, I saw this girl and, and it was just a collection of events. I saw the need, I made a decision, and then I saw that, I have to measure success in micro impacts, in real impacts. Mm-hmm. And, and it just empowered me. So I came back, I decided to write a book. And um, the idea, I'm a crazy guy. So the idea was to push myself physically by walking by myself for 30 days. You know, those, those people you, uh, you, you hear about that just kind of just grab a stick and walk up. Well, <laughs> I, the, rock, the rock I chose to it was Mount Everest. Okay. So I was going to fly in and I was going to do this self-exploration journey and I was going to go up and write my book about connecting with purpose and finding our power and all of that stuff. And I land and I find these kids again in Nepal that after school, they, they, they just didn't have anywhere to be and they'd be on the side of the street playing soccer with water bottles because they didn't have a ball. And I just said to them, what can I do to help? Like, what do you need? And so we, we just want a, a place where we can read and see books and just, you know, just not, just, just be infused by that inspiration and perhaps escape to a different place, even for a few moments. So Everest went out of the window and in came this project where I said, you know what, we're going to build a library here, no matter what it takes. And Right there and then, man, I saw these are sons and daughters of fruit sellers. These are uh, very socioeconomically disadvantaged, but they were nourished in terms of what they wanted to give. So and when they heard, 
Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, so I have to jump in here because I want, I want to make sure my listeners are, are understanding the chronology of this. So let me tell, tell me if I've got this straight. So there you are. You're this corporate guy. You really just feel like you've got to start doing something different. You start this expo. You don't know how you're going to do it. First one has 300 uh, people who show up to it. Um, and that's going and you're enjoying it and it's making you feel better than you do at your corporate world. You don't hate the corporate job. But you definitely feel better when you're doing good things for good people. Um, In the midst of that, though, you decide you need to go on a little pilgrimage. I need 30 days to myself. I need to go for a walk. You think, you know what? Let's go to Mount Everest. That's a good spot. So you head over to Mount Everest. You're going to take it as a quiet space to write your book about purpose. And while you're there, you see these kids. They say they they want books. You say, screw the the, the 30-day journey of writing the book. Let's build a library. Have I got this right? Yes, with, with a small adjustment that um, I resigned before I went to uh, Nepal. So in other words, all of what you said was good. Then I went to Morocco, the Sahara Desert part, and that's where I decided to resign. Okay. And a couple of months later, I ended up in Everest. Got it. So that's okay. how it played out. So while you're in Everest then, you said you're going to stay there for 30 days. Did you stay longer to build this library or did you say I'm going to come back and build this library? We actually ended up uh, the instinct would be that programmatic instinct would take over and say, you know what, we got to line up everything, we got to line up logistics, we got to line up this. But I guess the state of mind I was in and continue to be is when an opportunity presents itself, it's our, we have the power to connect with it. Mm-hmm. So, my man, our project started two hours after I walked into that school for the first time. Okay. We just rolled up our sleeves. The school said, here's an empty room, do whatever you want with it. Uh And we'll send the notification out to all the parents who want to help you. And just like this magical moment, people started converging. Like from all walks of society, they said, oh my God, we're going to build a library. Let's do it. What can I do? What can I do? People worked all hours. Stuart, three days later from entering the school, our library was inaugurated and 300 people were crying. So it had taken me, you know, all that time to get 300 people to my event. And here was in three days with love and passion and commitment of the local people. Our library, soup to nuts, was that room was transformed into a living, breathing, energetic space. And so where did the books come from? The parents? Basically, we bought them. Okay. We went around, talked to businesses, knocked on doors, literally, mm-hmm. went to publishers, purchased and uh yeah you know and and people just started donating the books that they had uh these parents didn't have a lot to start with so we started tapping into other aspects of society and my blueprint is based on this inherent belief and and resets this you know there are always people that will take advantage of a situation but for every one of those for the most you know the there are a lot of people that would do the right thing if they're given the opportunity to. Yeah. And that's what I saw. And that's what we replicate for every single build we do. Right. We don't go down the, the big NGO route. We don't come in and tell people what to do. We say, this is, this is us. We're leading with our heart because I was a boy just like the ones I'm trying to help. Mm-hmm. And they see it, they connect with it, and they surprise you. Yeah. And they surprise you with what they do. So, yeah. Okay. From that that trip, in that trip, we ended up building not one, but two libraries, one in Kathmandu, one six days by walk from the nearest road, 
on the Annapurna circuit. And the idea was on the second one to stress test the model, that if you need a hammer, it's got to come in from the road that, you know, I left six days ago and um, everything has to be hauled in by Jeep. But again, dove in, love and passion and stuff comes together. And when you say we, who's we at that time? Me. And so I have two big support networks. There's an army of people um, that that have gravitated around this platform. These are people that, that volunteer their time, like St. John's Ambulance would go do book drives and all of that stuff. But that's largely local in Canada here. Mm-hmm. The second part of that, we, which is the most important part, is the actual local people. These are people who will be using the library once it's done. Right. So I, in every one of my projects, if I don't find local people that deeply care as much as I do, I don't engage. And these are local mothers, local fathers, sometimes local organization. But for the most part, what, what, what I try and do is bypass everything and get to the people who are going to be walking by this library every single day and engage them. Right. So this built by locals as opposed to kind of like flying in to save the day. And, and what about when you were in uh, Nepal, though? And, and you were, because did you go to Nepal to write your book? Were you by yourself or did you go with some friends? Yes. You're by yourself. And so you say we, you mean you and the locals. Yes. And, and that's actually the case to this day. Um, I seldom have, like, I would have maybe two or three at most people that, that would come with me and that, and the 24 bells that's been maybe in four or five. The idea on this, Stuart, it's not about the library. It's about giving hope right? and about respect and about, uh, really resetting how we do social development, which is sometimes, you know, inherently looking at an inability of locals to take care of themselves. And, and I look at this as an inability of resources, but the heart and the courage is all there. And when they see that, when they see that you're not coming with judgment, man, you, I, I, I could tell, I could go on and on on how people to take their shirt off in the Amazon jungle. We were building in the Amazon jungle. This guy had been with us in a community of 60 indigenous people. And he had been working with us for two days and, we, we hauled in everything in canoes and we needed something to wipe the floor. And he takes his shirt off, the shirt he'd been wearing for two days. And he said to me, Sultan, the river is close by. I can always go and wash it. Right. So it was not a, it was not a throwaway resource for him, but, and it just, it just, you know, my methods are unusual, man, but I take immense pride in the fact that the team I work with, which is locals, will take their shirt off, literally. Yeah, you, when, you, when you hear people say that they'll take their shirt off their back, this is this is this just goes to show how much they will support you if you are willing to support them. So let me ask you just an absolutely off-the-beaten-path curiosity question. I'm not sure if some of my listeners are, are wondering and want me to ask this, but I my, this, this is the way my brain works. How do you get books? Because I know you've done now... Um, uh, about was it twenty four libraries, correct? Yes. yes. And you're doing your twenty fifth in uh, in Mexico City, I believe, in the next few weeks. In uh, in Mexico, but in the area of Playa del Carmen, in two weeks. In two weeks, okay. So, um, how do you? I mean, it's hard enough to get the money, to get the businesses, to get the to, to, whoops, I'm kicking things here, to get the books. But how do you make sure that the books are in their language? Wonderful, great question. 
So when we are engaging in a project, we try, because a lot of this is self-funded, up to you know 85% of everything has been self-funded mm-hmm. through my other initiatives. And that's what, what it does is it, is, is it keeps us honest in the sense that we're not accountable to anyone but our conscience. Mm-hmm. And and I'm, you know and that that really drives me. So where I'm going with that is we stretch every single dollar. So today, for example, I've had a conversation with a potential project in Tajikistan, followed by a potential project in Indonesia, and the blueprint is this: we try and find local people that could do book drives for us locally. Okay. And when they are able to do a book drive locally for us, books are heavy, books are expensive, books are a pain to move. So that's where we get a lot of traction. We buy them whenever we can locally in local languages. And for children's books, the real like colorful ones or text or, or, or high-end textbooks that are unavailable, uh, we would take them, you know, sort of high, highly impactful sort of colorful books and stuff to add to the local procurement would be brought in in suitcases and stuff from from Canada. I see. Okay. Yeah, because I was just curious about that. Okay. And so then you're, you're going, you're doing your, your 25th, um, you know, project now, 25th library coming up in Mexico. What has it been like for you personally? Um, obviously, you took a major pay cut. Um, even if you're taking, uh, you know, a managerial um, salary from this organization, which, you know, you need to put food on the table. You do have two young children. You do have a partner. You have a house. You got a mortgage. You got these kinds of things. So, but no matter what it would be, it would pale in comparison to what you're making in the corporate world. What's that been like personally to take that kind of pay cut? Have you had to make major sacrifices? Less restaurants? Uh, uh, <laughs> what, what's the deal? <laughs> well, I've lost fifty pounds, so less restaurants <laughs> for sure, and that's it's actually a true statement. The transformation hit me personally in the best way. Wow! Um, but uh, yeah, you know the you know the start of purpose, dude. I'll speak from my heart. It changes you in ways that you never expect. And to to really respect the depth of your question, I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna keep it very real. That's just, just how I work. So please do. And I know you are the same man. Yeah. So basically, the first step for me was I, I went for it, and, and I was I was making a lot of money. I was making you know upwards of quarter of a million dollars every every year, and and it was just you know life was all set. You know had my had my Audi and had all of that stuff. And now to give you context for the Library in a Week initiative, not only do I not take a salary, eighty percent of everything I actually spend out of my own pocket. Wow. So, yes. So it's all in. It, it, there's no BS. It's all in. I could easily go down, set up an NGO and, you know, have grants and things like that. But the way I'm looking at this is I want to I wanna keep the sincerity of that. I don't want to make revenue, you know, from, from ways that, that would perhaps compromise the integrity of that initiative just because it's so darn personal. And okay. we'll talk about that. We'll talk about what, why this is so personal. But mm-hmm. in order to fund me and my lifestyle, the first thing we did was a massive uh, sort of, I call it refocusing. So I drive a 350,000 kilometers. I'm going to celebrate. You're going to see a picture of me when my truck hit 350,000 kilometers. <laughs> so at 348 night right now, so, you know, I drive an old truck and... You're almost we, there. So that, almost there, man. 
when we cut our lifestyle, um, you know, we 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 focus on the basics, but we're not, you know, I wouldn't say we're we're struggling in that sense, but we we focus on what matters. But here's what it did. This is the strange part of that answer. I just came back from a two month backpacking trip with my daughters in Cuba, mm-hmm. and um, we were able to do that because our overhead of maintaining life is very low right here at home. Okay. And 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 when you start looking at number one expense reductions and things like that, you realize you're actually freeing yourself. Right. You're freeing yourself from things that look fancy but shackle you down to a way of life that is no longer yours. Yeah. You know, that expensive car or whatever. And I mean if you love that car, drive it every day. Like I I'm not against enjoying uh, the fruits of our labor. Yeah. But let's just not lose sight of what real enjoyment is and then what we truly love. And so we cut back on our lifestyle. And I am envisioning new conferences that if they land, they will not only fundamentally address youth empowerment by enhancing and disrupting our educational systems, but will uh, generate revenue for me so that I can fund all of my 100 libraries. So as a social entrepreneur, I put myself in the middle of the mix, you know, and right. the success of my projects affects my ability to survive in my livelihood. And then it all keeps it very, very real. I you know, bet. there isn't any lengthy meetings about any of that. I value my time. I focus on the energies and it's just being focused on, you know, finding ways to generate revenue um, in the in the events and other businesses that I'm involved in. Okay, Cause that, cause that, that's, that's what my I guarantee the people who are listening this this that's what they want to know. They're like, okay, yeah, 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 that's <laughs> nice, Sultan, but you still have to pay your mortgage, and and they're gonna they're gonna be saying, what does his wife do? Does, is she got a job? Is she the one paying the bills? Or so you do have other like um, businesses that you're involved with that at least put some growing them, man. growing them. So we, I mean, in honesty, the the thing with my story is this is not a story where I stashed away money from Microsoft and. I kind of like this is this is playing out as we speak, and I should be stressed out of my mind, but I, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> what does your What does your wife say to you? Does she Does she still like allow you to sleep in the same bed with her at night? Does she Does she like for you anymore? Part, for the most part, well, you know what? I'm very grateful to to have a supportive partner, and this is our joint dream, because at the end of the day, she knows that um, I'm a responsible guy, you know, and and together. We will we will continue to make sure we you know we are, our basic needs are met, mm-hmm. but also uh, the biggest impact that this has had and probably the biggest ROI that I could ever ask for is my daughters are now Canada's youngest social entrepreneurs right. at the age age and ten. They've been taking the stage, they've been rocking it. They're surrounded by amazing role models, and we are seeing the impact of this lifestyle on the one thing that matters, you know, which is which is really allowing our daughters to grow as individuals, to understand they have the power. All the stuff we're talking about, man, like they're surrounded by this. So, and, sorry, yeah, I, I want to jump in for a second because I want the listeners to know, for those who are, are, who are listening to this right now, uh, Sultan's two daughters have come up with an idea where they will take artwork from people in... Um, 
let's call it, and tell me if I'm wrong, but disadvantaged situations around the world, people who maybe don't get their artwork seen by as many people as, uh, as, as they deserve, and they're creating a platform for that artwork to be sold. And if I get it correct, they're, they're taking artwork from all around the world. Is that correct? That is correct, and it started right here at home when we were building a library in a First Nation reserve of Grassy Narrows. They met an artist, and they basically the idea again wasn't you know for them to do this. And they, they, his art was so beautiful and so spiritual, and it had never left his reserve for 15 years. And we just felt the world needed this this happiness in their life, this message of focusing on purpose and spirit and um so they said can we create they came up to me and said dad can we do our own thing <laughs> and i was like i knew we were gonna have this conversation i just didn't know at the age of eight and ten so i said well what can i do to help and and yes you're right uh, the model is that they find artists and they put their art up and for life these artists will get a royalty every time a print sells okay and coming back to your original question um Stuart, uh, these are all ROIs, you know, the, the, the investment returns that we are getting that we didn't expect. And this whole thing around, um, will we be able to feed our family when we make such drastic decisions? If you double click on that and then, you know, you do things like creating a runway and all of that, but also asking the question, what does the family actually really need and, and how much? Oh, I think I just lost you there, Sultan. I'm not sure if you can hear me, but I know that we were having a uh, a poor connection earlier on, and uh, I think that uh, one of his daughters may have jumped onto the computer at the same time. So I'm just going to stop the recording here for a second, folks, and I'm going to come right back, and uh, we're going to get Sultan back on the line. Just hold tight. Okay, we've got Sultan back on the line. He and I were having some internet connection problems there, but now we are back in line. So, Sultan, you were talking about how uh, the amount of resources a family actually needs are usually a lot less than what they think they need. Right, and, and asking this question as a family to say what will actually put a smile on our face, what, will actually, what do we actually want to do collectively with our lives, like, it leads to some very interesting insights. Like we went through this process. My kids were like, dad, you're jet setting around the world. You come home stressed and we love you, but you know, we don't really care about that multi-million dollar deal. You just closed. We care about you mm-hmm. and we want to do stuff with you. So it's it, it just sort of, again, coming back to the part is looking at the real needs versus what we think we need. Yes. Uh, was probably the biggest, uh, biggest, biggest thought that helped us act on what we always knew we needed to do. You know, I have this course that I teach called the Evolution Group. It's an online course, uh, and, and I used to teach it live. And I had an exercise, if you will, a part of the audience's homework is to really write down all the things that are important to them. You know, and I say, get, get, like, get really specific about it. I said, how important it is, is it for you to drive a nice car and to have a nice house and to be able to eat at certain restaurants? And I said, you know, how many times a week do you need to eat at a nice restaurant in order for you to be happy? And I said, and don't feel bad. If it's seven nights a week, that's totally fine. Yeah. 
Exactly. And, you know, and so they would all write these things down. And I said, I want you to put in a money value to it. So, for example, if let's say the restaurant that you have to eat at um, is costing you $100 to eat at, then it's $700 a week if, if you have to go there seven nights a week in order to be happy. And I said, add up that number and then tell me what it is that you need in any given year in order to really experience your true happiness from a material perspective. And I used to always love it because people would come back to the class the week later and I would ask people to start giving me their numbers. I'd say, okay, Michael, what's your number? And he'd say, 45,000. Okay, you know, Sharif, what's your number? He'd say, 32,000. And after they would say it, I'd go back, okay, Michael, how much do you make a year? He'd say, 175,000. Sharif, how much do you make? Oh, I make 250000 Susan, how much do you make? And, and you found out that the discrepancy between how much they made and how much they actually needed was always dramatic. And it was this great wake-up call for these people to realize the stuff that you really want, the stuff that makes you happy, you, you might think you need enough money to go out seven nights a week, but when you actually stepped back from the picture and asked yourself, what is it? You realize, you know what? I actually would only, if I was going out one night a week to a nice fancy restaurant, that would actually make me happy. And so if all of a sudden it drops from 700 down to $100. And they started applying that to all the aspects of it. You know what? Yeah, I don't really need to buy a new pair of shoes every couple of weeks. And it quickly made them realize, God, I need a lot less money than I thought, which freed them. And instantly they said, oh my God, all of a sudden now I don't need to work this job or I only need to work at this job maybe half the time that I currently work. And if that was the case, what would I do with the rest of my time? And so a lot of people, they don't, <laughs> they don't realize how, how, how free they could be if they just stepped back and did that exercise. And you were forced to do it because you said, okay, well, we're going to create this charity, charities. And in order to do that and for us to give 80% of our own income to it, what kind of uh, lifestyle do we have to lead? And once you've looked at that, you realized you have everything you need. Exactly, mate. And, and you know what? It, uh, it frees you up and too much, much to sort of like the point you were talking about. I, I believe that happiness is in the process of connecting with yourself mm-hmm. and, and not going for easy answers. Like people go from a life where they had everything and they, they run into a cave sometimes, mm-hmm. but they don't stay in the cave for long. You know, they, they actually just come back out and come into the real world. And I, I think to your point, if you enjoy certain luxuries in life, you've earned it to to enjoy them and don't feel bad about it. But but just do it for reasons that are deep. And I want good people to have lots of money. You know, they, they, they should create amazing social businesses so they can generate this income and free themselves and other people. And But at the end of the day, probably, you know, one of my long walks, moments, clarity, whatever you want to call it, was this, this simple question. How much of what I spend my time doing, buying basically specifically, would I be would I be buying? How much of my resources would be going to buying the things if I was on an island with two or three people on it? Mm-hmm. And it interestingly sets the question to wow, like if I am getting things for the projection of wealth or the projection of anything, then I am giving my power away, uh, my feeling of worthiness away from my own existence to an opinion of a group of people outside my existence. And thus, I'm always going to be dependent. No car is going to be enough. No golf membership would be enough because there'll always be people that are richer. Yeah. 
But if we reset that mindset and go, you know what, I left to play golf and, uh, you know, maybe this, this, this one round in two weeks with my friends is all I need. And that fancy membership can be repurposed to do stuff I really care about. Well, that's just it, right? You realize that, yeah, you have to sacrifice this, but what you get in return is so much more. But let me, let me challenge you on something here because really and truly, I would imagine that there's got to be something you've sacrificed that you kind of, if you look back and you're like, yeah, I must admit, that's one thing I don't get in my life anymore that pisses me off. Like, I'm okay with it. I don't have that anymore. It is. It has been a big sacrifice. But what has been something that that, that like if like back to what you're saying, just to get real, what 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 is there that makes you go, eh, yeah, I must admit that part is one shitty part about having to do what I do today. I don't have to think a lot about that one actually. Okay. <laughs> I can jump into it. What so it? it's going to be an unusual answer. It's gonna it's gonna respect the depth of your question, Stuart. So. You know, too many times we get sold on fairy tale stories, you know, that are like, yes, we do this and then out comes the bliss. But the reality of following your dream is it's hard. You are putting yourself, so for me, as somebody who would be supporting a $900 million business globally, jet setting around the world on business class, um, having a string of people that always want something from me and want to dedicate my time, fine and dine me and beautiful restaurants and you know I would have meetings sometimes in 15 minute chunks because that's all I could afford I mean I was you know and and so on and so forth right Mm -hmm. to come into the uncertainty of social entrepreneurship uh, requires one thing extensively which is constantly putting yourself out there so when we're trying to do a library build we put the project out there and many people will like it many people will love it many people will hug it but few will take tangible action to support you. Right. And you feel naked. You feel, damn, like you realize you're gonna, at the end of this, are gonna you know, do a small book drive and you're gonna raise this or you're gonna send a hundred bucks or whatever. And my hourly rate used to be $300 an hour. <laughs> and here I am, I am asking, putting myself out there, um, you know, but so, so that is frustrating. Yeah. It's frustrating because it's draining. It's draining because you see a lot of human behavior that tends to come from, yep, great, but when it actually comes to like tangible things, it fizzles out. So what I had to do to, to cope with that, to be honest with you, and the sabbatical helps, and is I continuously ground myself on my purpose. Mm-hmm. And my purpose is like in Nepal, for example, and recently we went back and this girl who had never left her village had a virtual reality headset on her and was doing a shark dive and walking in the pyramids. Mm-hmm. And the yelp she had nourish your soul. And and I just looked at that and I said, I'm, you know what? I'm fighting to create these experiences yeah. for kids. That's you know, amazing. everything. So, you know, I know because you must be thinking to yourself sometimes, God, like I have people that I used to associate with in my job at Microsoft or any big company, it doesn't matter, who could easily write me a check for $25,000 and they wouldn't even miss it for a second. And what I could do with that $25,000 is mind-blowing. And yet here I am talking to somebody who's kind of humming and hawing about whether or not they're going to give me 50 bucks. 
And you're thinking, oh my God, like, you know how many books I can buy in Nepal with 50 bucks? Yeah, I get that. That, that must be frustrating. I find that, in, on a, and, and this is not the same way, but I, the, the event that you participated in, the Top 10 event, and obviously, as you know, I'm raising money for a charity um, and for kids in need in Toronto. And I just, oh my God goodness like we're selling we'll be selling a ticket i'm like okay so let me just get this straight just so you know the ticket is 60 bucks for 60 dollars, you will have 10 celebrated individuals they'll all have 10 minutes each on stage they're going to tell you something really empowering and really motivational they're going to make you laugh they're going to make you cry and you're really having and, and and you know you're free that night and you've got to think about this. And, you know, the money's going to a charity. And you're like, oh, I don't know. It is 60 bucks. And that same person goes out and they'll spend $60 at H&M for, you know, five, yep. t- five T-shirts that will all fall apart in, 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 a, in a month. And they don't think twice about doing that. And it's like, oh, my God, it's like pulling teeth. That is frustrating. So I, I, I hear you on that. So I can imagine and, this one sacrifice that uh, drives you crazy. And you know what, Stuart, just to add to that, because um, I'm a I'm a problem solver in, in this life that I'm leaving, leading right now, uh, I, I, I really look at big problems come and hit us, and then we have a bigger soul that can overcome them. So mm. the way I'm dealing with this is protecting my energy in the sense that I have a tribe of people that would go to the ends of the earth to do whatever is in their power. If they have nothing, they will take their shirt off. And, yeah. and these are real people, and they're in the hundreds now, and I spend more time with them. Right. And they get nourishment. I get nourishment. So I just sort of like plug in the general drain in terms of my energy. And secondly, I said, you know what? My options are I don't want to keep doing this in terms of uh, putting myself out there for like little bits and that. But the purpose is so big that we're never going to give up on it. So my approach to that was we're going to self-fund this, this philanthropic aspect of it, and then we're going to create a separate conference that solves real business problems for a very, for an industry that is struggling to modernize, and we're going to make money doing it, mm-hmm. and that money is going to go towards funding my initiative. So because I'm delivering value uh, and millions of dollars of value, I'm good at that and for businesses i can choose to accept the ones and monetize that value and then my reason is hey you know what we're going to take that money and we're going to fund our libraries where we don't have to go and ask for 10 bucks and 15 bucks and you know put ourselves out there so that's smart that's uh, smart you go out there and get add value to the corporations who have the money that they can psychologically feel comfortable paying for and then just use that money to fund the charity Exactly. And, and they get value. It's a separate business and they get all of that. And, uh, but, but I get to live my purpose. Beautiful. And I think that the reason why I even brought that up, man, is too many times we get frustrated in life with, especially with negative energy when it comes in the, in the example I gave. But if we care enough about what we're trying to do, if we sleep with that and if we breathe that, then we, there are always options. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Well, you know what? Before we, we, we sign off here, how much does it cost? I mean, I know it's going to be different per country, but how much do you generally need in order to build a library? Soup to nuts. We actually complete our projects between five to 10,000 Canadian. Five to 10,000 Canadian. Yes. And, and 
while organizations, you know, that have big offices, I mean, we closed our office down and we, we built three libraries out of it. So wow. we have optimized the model to the, to the brim because it's our, it's our own money, right? So yeah. there's no inefficiency. There is actually no employees. I don't take a salary, none of that. Mm-hmm. And we just focus it on purpose. And we focus it on purpose. Probably the most important thing in all of this Stuart, is a message to your, to your listeners. Uh, that that you know really comes to my to from my heart is as we look at the time left on the planet and we look at this voice that has been whispering and we look at all the limitations and all of that and the biggest thing in this transformation is to ground ourselves on something that's very real and for me I build libraries um, there's a story I tell at the launch of every library about a boy whose family fell on hard times. He couldn't afford shoes. He couldn't afford uniform and books changed his life, went to a university. But if you're talking about, you know, project spends and all of that, uh, not project spends, but like how much we need, he survived on less than 20 bucks a month and for, for years, for years and would cycle an hour and a half each way. And in the middle of that was a little bookshop. And he would go into that bookshop. I shared the story at the convocation of Sheridan, and I shared it. I shared in times when sincere people are listening to my voice and are asking the question in their own lives, but are surrounded by limitations. And he was surrounded by limitations, like there's no tomorrow. You name it, basically, it was it was there. And this bookshop was a was a, was a spaceship for him because he could go there. And he could see these pictures, these these incredible humans from other parts of the world, and and then just it sparked his dream that one day I will I will go there, one day I will have a full meal with these exotic foods, and while not having the ability to buy that book or to feed himself that day properly, and every dream of that boy came true. This is why every build I talk about, I build with my own hands. Most of my shirts are covered with paint, like the ones I wear sometimes even to my speaking contracts because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're my memory part. And I look in the eyes of these kids and through my voice, I'm engaging with your audience and sharing something that comes from deep within that. Every dream of that boy came true. He went to 75 countries of the world. He lived a life that he was proud of that was successful only to realize the real version of success is doing things that matter. And that boy was on your podcast today. This is my story. It's so wonderful. I love that story. And I think it's so important for our listeners to understand that, uh, that that's real. That is you. That is your story. And, and you used to be there. And, and to, to know that you've managed to do what you've done today is a great testament to what a person can do. And and I really do appreciate you taking the time to share that story with us, uh, Sultan. I just, I think that uh, it's important for people to realize that there are many paths to happiness, and it doesn't have to always be the traditional path. And in fact, quite often, when you take a different path uh, than the traditional path, you will quite often find that it uh, brings you even greater happiness than you expected. H- happiness, in many cases, that you never even knew existed. And it doesn't have to always be the altruistic way, but definitely making a difference in the world seems to consistently make people happy. It's uh, You don't often meet anyone who's been involved with something that 
has had a positive impact on the lives of people who are less fortunate. And they've said, yeah, you know what? That just wasn't, didn't resonate with me. Just, it wasn't, it wasn't fun. I didn't enjoy that. You, you, I don't think, I've personally never met anybody who said that. I'm sure you haven't either. So um, I think it's important for yeah. us to, to understand that, that, um, that, that this is, that this, whether this is the thing you do with your life um, or whether it plays a role in your life, I think that giving back to the world in some way is uh, it has to be a component of your life if you really truly want to be uh, experiencing the full level of happiness that a person can achieve while they're on this planet for that very short amount of time. So, uh, before I let you go, Sultan, what if it if someone out there is listening to this and they think, you know what, I want to throw fifty bucks or I want to throw five thousand dollars toward his next library? How how do they do that? Where do they go? It's very straightforward. They can go to libraryinaweek.com and they can sponsor a project. And we basically have endless projects lined up. Um, and uh, as soon as we find, as soon as we're able to dedicate funding or we find funding, we just go and build them. So from First Nation reserves in May to Indonesia to potentially Tajikistan to everywhere in the world, uh, we have projects. We don't care what people look like, what they believe in. Misery doesn't discriminate, neither do I. And we just pretty much built. So they're able to go to libraryinaweek.com. They're actually able to see the bills that uh, that happened. And uh, one one thing that they can also do is they look at uh, the big, you know, a lot of us have dependents and, and family is go to two sisters on a mission.com and they'll be able to see the impact this whole journey had on my kids. Um, Visually, fantastic. So, okay, so yeah. two sisters on a journey dot com. Two sisters on a on a mission. Sorry, dot two com. two sisters on a mission dot com and library in a week dot com. Dot com. Got it. Okay. Well, I'm going to go there and make a donation right now. Um, and I just want to say thank you for the work that you do. Thanks for the difference that you make in the world, Sultan. And thank you for being on my show. And we'll have to have you back on the show in the near future. But uh, <laughs> until then. I wish you nothing but the best, my friend. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. Hey, you know what? Um, I, I love everything you stand for. And really, at the end of the day, all I have to say to everybody listening is do what you love and have one hell of a time doing it just like Stuart does. So awesome. there we go. Thanks, Sultan. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you for tuning in to The Stuart Knight Show. We hope you've enjoyed this powerful conversation. People are fascinating, and so are you. And the right questions will prove it. We'll prove it.